Hello, and welcome to another edition of the DevOps Podcast. As always, the views represented in this podcast are the individuals alone and do not represent the corporation they work for. Thanks and enjoy. How are you? Good, how are you? Uh, I'm well. So I'm here with Jessica. What You want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Tell everybody sure, who you sure. are, what your title is? So, Jessica Constantinidis. Thank you, because I, I actually was going to try that. But yeah, I, 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 I know. It's you've great. You've challenged me it's a great. few times, and I, I've yeah. not been successful once, so I was yeah. going to let you It's actually it. pretty easy. It's constant, as I Constant. Constantinidis. Tinnitus. Constantinidis. See, I wouldn't say tinnitus. I would probably say tinnitus, and then you'd be. Yeah, like, but that's like tendonitis. You don't normally do that. No, 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 no. All right, now that I've now that I've picked on your name, you can slap me for. <laughs> um, go ahead and tell us who you are, just for the podcasters. So, so there we go. Jessica Constantinidis. I actually work at ServiceNow since the first of May, so pretty new. Yes. Um, working in a team of Chris Pope, who obviously prior to me did a podcast, so the level is really high up now. Yeah, um, not sure when we'll release these, but uh, you know, it'll be somewhere probably, maybe the same day. Even. Who knows? We'll see. Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> well, if you do mine first, it's going to be a bit weird. It would be. Yes. All right, I'll make sure I do Chris's first. <laughs> so I'm on the team as an evangelist, um, running in the EMEA region. Uh, so I'm going to be doing the T50 accounts. I'm going to be doing public speaking. As today, we are at the DevOps Summit, so I'm, I'm here to support you guys as well. Um, so yeah, um, happy to have joined a, a very interesting company. Um, from my background, I have been doing evangelization, or as we call it, you know, there's, there's a there's a few number of things that that people say in terms of. It's very loud. Yeah, there we go. So evangelization is a bit like you know, looking at customers and, and challenging them and, and seeing how they can do things differently from a different perspective. I was doing co-creation, co-innovation prior to this my previous company um, and I think when you look at where ServiceNow sits today it does really fit in where the customers are having questions you know nice. so let's get a little bit of your background so obviously this is our DevOps podcast we're here oh, yeah. at DevOps Enterprise Summit 2019 London um, yeah it's been pretty awesome so I you know you've been kind of thrown in over the last few weeks you've joined us in some partner enablement training yes um, you're sort of the resident uh, as you said, evangelist, but also you're covering a lot of the DevOps stuff with us, so it's very neat to see and uh, really nice to have some help. So thank you for that. Um, so give us a little bit about your background. How did you get into this gig, and, and you know where have you come from, and what have you done? Oh, I've been in IT for for some years. Yeah. Um, the reason I dyed my hair blonde is because you know you want to hide the gray soon. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. I feel that. Yeah. No, but I, you know, I started off, I think, as everybody probably started off, uh, when I was studying, there was no decent IT education. Um, I got out of school, and then all of a sudden, you know, I kind of realized I don't know anything. So let's go study this at Talindus. And Talindus was doing, at the time, a THTI, so Talindus High Tech Institute, which was a month studying, a month working, a month studying, a month working. And in there, I got to learn everything from networking, security, um, all the basics, the IRQ cards, the programming, the C++, the Visual Basic, you know, all of those beautiful things that kept us awake at night. And while I was doing all of that, I got my first gig working for uh, Isabel, which is the Belgian banking company, which was an independent banking app that they was launching at the customers. And, and you've got to picture this now. This was in, in, in the 90s, right, where we had to physically go to customers 
with the PCs, not necessarily server, the PCs would actually be in barns or at their home office. Or, or I actually had rubber boots to go wow. install these things. And then we had the IRQ cards, we had the card readers, we had all of those things, and we had like half a day to get it fixed. And there was a really low band, you know, the beep, beep, beep modem kind of thingies those days. Wow. Yeah, and that was what, that was the moment when I started working in IT and obviously working my way up. And then first line help desk, second line help desk, third line help desk. Then I kind of went like, this is not it, right? So, and then they said, you know, there's this thing called J.D. Edwards. Do you want to do some programming? I never heard of programming. And I thought, oh, yeah, cool. And then I started with C++, the Visual Basic, and everything else. And I found out, you know, sitting behind a desk eight hours a day, looking at a screen, not having any interaction, and just looking at your syntax being wrongly coded for about five hours, and then they go like, duh, that was the code. Not me. Right. So I moved on from that one. But, but the beauty is I do have that background. Yeah. So I can relate to that. I can relate to everything like that. And I think going further down in my career, I, I was lucky enough to be working for uh, BBL, who then got acquired by ING. I was one of their SMS administrators, so system management server. So we were actually packaging applications, rolling them out, NT4 to Windows 2000 and Active Directory implementations, the good old days. So I've, I've been there, right? So you're to, saying the good old days. I had you keep flashing back. I've had like three post-traumatic stress, you know, from the modem base <laughs> at an ISP that I used to work for when I was in college, and then like all these NT, like I immediately go, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I remember when I was when I was that was the year 2000. That was a brilliant year because everybody thought for some weird reason that the computers would stop to work. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That was that was the biggest cash cow night of my life. I was sitting there for 24 hours, obviously thinking, you know, this is going to just work. We mm. ordered pizza, we ordered everything, but we were physically sitting in the data center. Oh, yeah. Now, the one thing we didn't know is that, obviously, the heating doesn't work at night over the weekend. Mm. So we were freezing like hell, but it was a fun moment. And I think, you know, at that time, we kind of realized when I was quite young that customers are risk-prone and they look at these things differently. And, and we were from... Obviously, a mathematical and IT perspective, we kind of go like, well, 1999 going to 2000, that's not going to be an issue, right? Right, right. But they all thought it would be. And I think I learned a lot during those days, kind of going like, oh my God, customers do think differently at some perspective. And of course, if it impacts the business, if it impacts the post or the bank or whatever, it is massive. So having lived all those lives, um, I then the last nine years, well, maybe before that, it's probably easier. I joined VMware prior to the IPO. That's yeah, we were where I know. The, we're both ex-VMware folks. Yes. But you, you. I did the pre-IPO. You were pre-IPO. Yes. Which is a whole different world. Yeah. So if people are listening in, you probably remember or see my face if you're that old. Because uh, I was doing the VMworld TV in 2007 and 2009, having a full nice. TV crew with me. And, and I was probably one of the only female SEs in EMEA working for uh, VMware. So obviously very technical. And after VMware, I kind of said, oh, never, I'll go to, back to a reseller or whatever. And, but then eventually Dimension Data convinced me. And uh, <laughs> it was funny because I wasn't actually going to go there. But I must say they did a pretty good pitch. And nine years of Dimension Data actually proves to me that it was a pretty good company to work for. Yeah, you, and you I stayed still, long enough. Yeah, yeah sure. I stayed long enough. And I think you know one of the reasons I stayed long is because Dimension Data was also a company that gave you a lot of information and it gave you a lot of opportunities. So within there, I started as a virtualization specialist and moved into cloud, was a GM for data center and cloud in Europe, 
then I actually moved into the IoT role. And, and the last year, year and a half, I was doing co-creation, co-innovation with really large customers. Basically tackling back to that knowledge of how do you do big deployments, how do you do all of those things, but also how do you then de-risk, how do you then think differently, how do you then, you know, implement all of that, how do you make sure that, you know, a customer doesn't necessarily take the same route because we've always done it, and challenge them. And I think that's also part of the reason why Chris has hired me. Because yeah. he basically said to me, you know, it doesn't matter whether you know service now or not. What I want is that A, you challenge, B, you understand how they work, how they feel, and, and I'm also humble enough to understand that if you talk to guys like Lloyd's or HSBC, they have more IT people than most companies have. So you've got to be very vigilant and say, look, you know, I understand that you have all of these guys and let's work with them. And I'm not knowing this better because I'm a former vendor, you know. And I think it's also important, and, and this is where I, I learned a lot at Dimension Data as well, is that it's about the ecosystem. It's about the partners. It's about how you work together, how you make things work. And the one plus one actually has to at least equal three or four or five and I think this is where today the biggest challenge lies ahead in terms of, you know, how do we map all of this? Because the ecosystem and specifically coming back to DevOps is multiple tools, is multiple vendors, is multiple environments. And, and it's not about taking the whole cake. It's about taking a piece of the cake and making sure that the frosting is equally divided everywhere. Right. And I think that's that's where, you know, I want to be today. That yeah. is, yeah, that is the hot spot. It's amazing as we're down there on the uh, on the show floor that there's just there's so many vendors, yes. so many vendors, and and it's kind of crazy to me that, um, well, first off, this is the year of the socks, right? That no, we, we, we have to address the socks. <laughs> I should have so. taken the socks, eight pairs of different socks, and I didn't even take all the colors. <laughs> what the heck? Like we showed yeah. up yesterday, we went for a run for uh, hey, let's go check out all the cool stuff at the booths and see how much stuff we can get. Socks and stickers, and it was all socks. Yes. And I'm like, what? This is the year of the socks. We missed the memo. Yes. Uh, so yeah, we, we were making jokes too, really nerdy jokes, but we were saying this year's Devs uh, DevOps Enterprise Summit is socks compliant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the wrong way, the wrong yeah. socks. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, no, it was pretty brilliant, but yeah, we had to address the socks because that was we oh, had a yeah, lot of fun with that is, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. We um, did. But yeah, it is kind of mind blowing because we sat down and we, and we were talking to all these vendors and you know, but it's almost so crazy because we all have very similar sounding. You know, everybody wants to show a value stream. Everybody yes. wants to uh, help be a single pane of glass for managing mm. DevOps. Everybody wants to, but it's really interesting because then you just be like, well, what data do you guys gather and like how you know oh. how is your platform redundant? Are you in the cloud? Like how did you build the and. Um, you know, it's interesting because I see a lot of it. It's like it's a really great tool, but it's not a platform. It's no, not a sure. platform approach to this. Um, and it's, so it's going to be interesting to see how the whole industry sort of shakes out from from a management perspective. I will say that, you know, my eyes were open, like I said, with um, with Chris, that like once you see the service management lens and you see the world through that lens, it's really hard to see anything else as, you know, kind of almost, you know, I built this as a service, but I'm not doing any service management. So how, how is this really a service if I'm not really doing end-to-end -end service management? Yes. Um, so yeah, so that part's always interesting. But So let me hear from you. Like, What, what have been your most impressive uh, sort of takeaways from the conference so far? I know we've only been here a day and a half, but yeah, um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts? What are you seeing that you... That I think are... the first impression walking in is, is I see logos that obviously you do attach to DevOps, but you also see logos that you kind of go like, hang on, what do you do? <laughs> Um, and, 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 you know, talking to some of the people, you're absolutely right. They all say the same things. But once you dig a little bit down, 
they don't have answers for all of that. And I think, sure, every vendor probably has their solution, which is, I call it the horse flap solution. They kind of go like, this is what we see as a problem, so we'll solve that problem and that's it, mm-hmm. right? But, I like but, that, the horse flap solution. Yeah, you know, the horses in cities that get the flaps yeah, just yeah. So not to get scared and they just walk what they need to walk, you know, and that's it. It's pretty great. But I think if, if you then reflect back into a company and who that company is and what they need to do, you cannot have horse, horse flaps because what you do here affects somebody there and affects somebody on the other side. And I think if you then talk to the customers, and, and the funny thing is we had several large brands actually popping up at the boot. Where colleagues, so large brand A, colleague ABC, do not talk to each other. Large brand B, colleague ABC, <laughs> do not talk to each other. But they're all asking the same thing. Oh, yeah. They're like, hang on, I'm doing this. I've got this issue, but I do not have A, visibility. B, I do not know how to get this. And C, our version is not up to date, so we can't actually get there. And what I also see is that they're very focused on what they do. And then I asked him a question, like I had a DevOps management guy and he said, you know, I, I, I have the processes, I have GitLab, I have all of that, I have Jira, I have all of that. I can now manage it. And I'm like, so how do you then physically do it? And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, do you log into Jira, GitHub and, and all of the other guys and then manage it there, get an ITSM ticket and get it back to the other side? And, and he's like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll do that. But then we'll send emails as well. And then I kind of lose track where we coded it in and then we need to find that one again. And I'm like, but what if you could just have it in one location? What if you could just do that? And he's like, oh, can we? And I'm like, okay, so you have walked around, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, but everybody says they can, but they can't actually do this. And I think this is where the whole platform thing becomes very important because you're basing yourself on data data that goes into production, data that comes from users, that goes through users, to approvers, to whatever. And in the A to Z, none of the DevOps management tools will actually go outside of DevOps. And you're stuck. No, it is very much the... Uh, so we've had multiple analysts, uh, I think it was Charlie Betts that said it, and I don't know if he coined this term, but to give attribution, but he said data is the new oil. Like Oh, that, that's industry. an old quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah I don't yeah. know who, attribu- who to attribute it to, but... I mean, ultimately, it really is. It's, yes. it's there's the most value in the industry right now is if you have the data, right? And yeah, we've seen that with Google and Facebook, and you know. And it's also how you manage the data. I think a lot of the people forget about okay, data's good, but if you're sitting on top of a pile of very valuable data and I'm you don't know how to how to deal with that, yeah. you're in a bit of a pickle because what are you going to do? And I also had data discussions with people because data is so overrated to some extent. I think. I had a discussion that was prior when I was still at Dimension Data. Somebody said, you know, we want to do CCTV, but we can't actually use that data because it comes from the police. And I said to him, I said, look, you know, what do you mean by use the data? And he's like, well, we can't get it. And I'm like, of course you can't get it. It's personalized data, GDPR, you can't get it. But if there's a specific subset of saying, and I'm not now taking it in a completely, you know, extracted version of, but you know that data contains like, for instance, a criminal or whatever, and you're in a park and you're a female and you're alone at night. And you that data doesn't necessarily say that it's it's a Joe or it's a, it's a Paul or whatever, but, but, but that person is known as a criminal. And you will get a text message saying, at your two o'clock, going 500 yards, there is a criminal. You might want to go around that. 
Does that mean that you need to own that data, that you need to know that it's Joe or Paul or anybody else? No, you don't. You just need to be aware that you need to avoid that spot. Is that GDPR prone? No, because I'm not sharing that it's Paul or whoever, and I'm not sharing that he's a criminal. I'm just saying you're not supposed to go there. Wow. Yeah. So it's about using that data, and it's also about understanding, is this something that A, we can do, B, is legal, C, is valuable. And I think that piece of value is something that people forget. It's not because you have data that it will bring you value. It's how you use that data and how you basically get out of it. If I know at 2 o'clock, 300 yards, there's you know a felon, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> right. Yeah? Yeah, that's Regardless great. who I am, regardless who that is. And I don't need to know if they're like if they have a parking ticket that they haven't paid for or if they're a full-on criminal. But I just don't want to risk it, so I'll walk around it. Right. And you can share that data. That's not a problem because you can say, look, there's an unsafe zone. Right, right. Regardless of deleting of, or sharing any of that subset of data. So I'm very interested because you uh, you just triggered a memory in, from a few weeks ago when I was here. Uh, I've only ever been to London three times. Oh, there we go. I've seen you twice. Twice <laughs> has been. You've seen me and twice has been within the last month. So Yeah. Um, well, no, one of the things that you kind of opened my eyes to was, uh, you know, we're, we were showcasing and training some partners on our new DevOps product and yes. we were going through all these amazing things. And for us, we were talking about this thing called uh, developer karma, right? And mm -hmm. there was this idea mm -hmm. that you could give levels of access to production to developers who were following process and procedure better, doing better code builds, doing better commits. And uh, I remember you kind of shut us down and you said, guys, this this must be great in the United States, but over here that'll never fly. At no, least. no, no, no. Workers' and councils. And I said, wait yeah, a minute. Yeah. I go, what? And you go, the, the Germans will never let that fly. The, the GDPR rules for this whole <laughs> workers' council. Like, you could never put for performance data of an individual into a platform and then share that data between the teams. And we're like, that's the whole point of DevOps, like transparency, having teams work and <laughs> knowing who your best, you know, most of the people. Governments don't quite think like that. <laughs> well, and that's, so, so, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. so tell me a little bit about this. Like, what are we up against over here in, in you know, this side of the pond? And you're, you're yeah. in Belgium, right? Yes. And so well, I don't yeah. know if we've mentioned that to anybody. But, um, <laughs> so you're in Belgium and you're seeing a lot of EMEA. Like, what are those rules around GDPR? And Yeah, so, so basically, uh, let me give you an example. So if you do a survey, for instance, inside a company, and, and that survey purposes to actually give somebody uh, a higher salary or a better position or whatever, you have to be very cautious and very careful of what you put in there and, and whether you actually ask these people the right questions or not. So, for instance, for that developer karma, anything that can and will be used against a person that is linked to that person that does not actually come back to, let's just say, the HR individual and can be seen by the peers is not allowed. So it's funny because, yes, you want to do it with the, the best intent, mm -hmm. but you can inter interpret it badly. So imagine you have the developer karma and you have a level 1 to 10. 10 is a really good developer. 1 is a really crappy developer. Mm -hmm. And and you obviously want to reward the number 10. And <laughs> I'd be 1 through 4. That would be my rating. <laughs> Not necessarily <laughs> the 1. Then, then workers' councils could hold that against you and say, look, if you are number 1, we could potentially fire that person because you're underachieving, so you can't make that public. You, you can only do 8 to 10, for instance. And it's a bit weird because it kind of it kind of defeats the purpose of what you're trying to do, but on the other hand, it protects the employee. 
Mm. So I think if you go into workers' councils, I think depending on the countries, because obviously France is different than Germany. So, so if you get it past Germany, 80% of European countries will follow. Yeah, I think Germany is probably the most high up on, on standards and, and, and details. Um, but yeah. It, so workers' councils, I'm, I'm confused. Is that is it almost like a union? It sounds almost it's like a, a union. union. Yes, it's unions. Okay, so but the they workers don't, they for don't IT officially. are kind of unionized? Everybody's unionized. Really? Yeah. So, so basically what happens, and I can explain this for Belgium, for instance, if you're part of a union and they want to fire you, um, they have to have a specific reason. Mm. Like you have in the US, you have performance improvement plans and all sorts of things, right? The same thing for Europe. So you, you can have a bad review, but then they follow you up. And then after six months, you have another review. If that doesn't improve, then they need to do another six months and then they can fire you. Wow. Um, we also have uh, in Europe a, a little bit of a different contractual firing kind of relation. So if you get fired, you get money from the state to survive, right? So unless if your firing is because of a bad thing, mm. aka you stole, you underperformed or whatever, right, right. then you do not receive that money. So it's very sensitive. Because if you get fired and your C4, as we call it, it's a form It's a form that you get, it's kind of like a firing form, says that you've been fired for a specific reason, it actually means that you will not get that money. Mm. So it's very sensitive when wow. you talk about these things. And I think, you know, you have to respect what the countries have put in, you have to respect all the processes and procedures behind it. And, and what I see is that not all people understand where that comes from. The real deal is that you have to be cautious and, and really communicate with the countries if you want to do these things. So if you do go into Germany, you say, look, you want to do developer karma, you need to really talk to HR, you need to talk to workers' councils or the unions, and they need to approve it prior to it being installed. Because if you don't, you can get in real trouble. Yeah, this is one of the craziest cultural things that, uh, you know, it's, it's so funny because everybody says they want to do DevOps and they want to be DevOps. And, um, you know, it's always tongue-in-cheek for me. That's why, you know, I started a personal blog because I'm in marketing now. and mm -hmm. But I... You know, they're like, what are you going to call it? I'm like, you know what? Honestly, I, I hear so many people be like, and there was this meme that went around and it was like, I'm a DevOps, I'm a DevOps, I'm a DevOps. And so I called it I'm a DevOps, right? Because mm -hmm. the whole idea is everybody wants to be it, but nobody, I don't, it's one of these things that's always kind of happens in our career where you hear a buzzword, I want to be in the cloud, I want to be a DevOps. Oh like, And I, I say a DevOps because it's, it's always kind of a joke to me. But the reality is a lot of people don't understand these cultural shifts because, yeah. you know, to talk to a company, it sounds like almost anywhere in Europe, um, anybody that's following <laughs> GDPR, probably. <laughs> we're going to have to have a different mentality because the culture, okay, so we're here, Gene Kim's got a new yes. book called The Unicorn Project. Mm -hmm. We've seen an excerpt, we've got you know early release to it because we're here and it's kind of cool. comes out around the November timeframe. But the unicorns are these companies that are doing 186,000 changes in production, you know, every day. Yes. It's the Yahoo's, the Google's, the mm -hmm. Wealthfronts, the Wayfair's, the, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all these companies, but the regulated companies are always having a problem accepting DevOps. Yes. And now what I'm hearing is, you know, when we talk about developer karma, it was always a positive thing. It was, mm -hmm. um, basically we kind of call it a, it's developer karma was one uh, term that actually Tamim Horani from uh, RapDev has kind of coined. So big ups to, to me because he's amazing and a very brilliant dude but um, but we've also I, I kind of call it because I come from kind of a financial services background I, I called it the developer FICO score right it mm -hmm. was the it was this credit score where if you build up a high enough level of credit in such that 
you follow best practices, you do the right things, you mm-hmm. have the right behaviors, you always copy your story ID into your commits, you always make sure that everything's tested properly in the passing uh, before you deploy to production. You have a very low incident rate that mm-hmm. you're causing incidents in production that you should then be able to get the positive side of it, which is now we write a business rule that says, you know, every time, you know, it would be you more than me, but every time Jessica now, because she has a developer karma score of seven or higher or a mm-hmm. developer FICO score of seven or higher, she can now push into these production environments because they're low risk and she's mm-hmm. got an automated change approval that's passing mm-hmm. and it's awesome. Whereas Eric, he's still like barely a two. Um, but then the, even the idea with that was to be, well, whenever Eric goes to push code, make sure that a Jessica is, is overlooking his work mm-hmm. and helping him build up his credit score. And it was this whole idea that we elevate the teams together. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of cultures in the U.S. where, you know, the, the best one that I heard was just recently where literally every uh, 18 months they swap everybody. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not in the United States. That's a company that's here in EMEA. Uh, but it every could, it could be Don't, as long as you have HR supporting it and the workers' council supporting it, it's not an issue. Uh, I got you. But so you just have to, to have buy-in from they the... need to be aware. They need to understand the program and need to agree with to, to the program. If they do not agree, it's going to be a nightmare implementing it. Wow. Um, yeah, this one was really cool. It's a, a company we may start working with, um, but it, he, the one person now they've actually made the cultural shift to be DevOps, right? Mm-hmm. And so he owns all three teams of DevSecOps and mm-hmm. you know all of those people and. His practice now is every, it's either eight months or 18 months, and I apologize, I'd have to look at the nose, but every so on and so forth, he will literally swap people. He will make people that are developers go work in the ops team, and he'll make people in the ops team go become developers and learn how to do automated testing or learn how to code. Um, But that has to run through the appropriate processes before you can do that. Interesting. So he's having to get all this approved through work councils and everything else. Yes. That's pretty wild. Man, what a challenge. I mean, it's already hard but enough to make the cultural shifts. Now you got to get through those. I understand where they're coming from because it, it is basically out of protection for the employee. Yeah. Right? So so we, we shouldn't look at it as a bad thing. It's just something that you need you need to keep in account. Yeah. Sure. And and obviously it does take time because you need to keep in account that these workers' councils, they, they're not necessarily IT people. They're not necessarily completely understanding of how this thing works. So it's up to us to then take normal people language and explain it to them. Yeah. And I think that obviously is, is a time-consuming thing. They need to see it. They need to understand it. They need to evaluate it. And then it comes back. I, I kind of compare it to a regulatory thing from a bank. It's the same thing. Sure. You, know, you, need to, you need to get through the process, need to get on board. And as long as they understand what it is and they say, thumbs up, let's go, then you can do it. Because there's a lot of DevOps company in Germany. Don't get me wrong. But, A, they were either built with DevOps, so they never had the legacy, they never had anything, or they are very close to their workers' councils, and they, they really explain this correctly. Oh, wow. So, well, that's yeah. very cool. Well, I mean, it's good to know for, I mean, for me, even as I'm dealing with all these companies, to make yeah. sure that we've checked that box and ensuring that the cultural change that we need to take place to transform them will mm-hmm. actually pass through the workman. Is it workmen's council, workers' council? Well, they call it workers' councils. It could be unions. It depends where you are. So Belgium, it's unions. Germany, it's workers' councils. Uh, France, it's unions as well. So, so it depends. But it's the organizations that actually protect the employees. So they are sitting on the board. They are they are being elected. So, wow. so once you get to a certain uh, level of employees, you can elect people and you can actually create a workers' council. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's great. I, I love a lot of these cultural differences because it's uh, very unique. Unfortunately, well, I would say unfortunately, but I, I don't want to get political, but it, 
in the U.S., uh, workers aren't as protected in IT, right? It's it's another. It's like for us, it's generic. Regardless in which industry you are, there's really? always workers' councils. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's always uh, most of the most of that stuff is still kind of. Um, I would say, you know, we have these blue collar versus white collar type jobs, and most white collar jobs are unprotected. It's mm-hmm. it's at will employment, and you're lucky to have this job. So if we decide to let you go, sorry. Well, um, for us, if, if for instance they decide to let me go. From a service now perspective, they would have an issue because they probably will have to let me stay for another three months and have a pretty good reason to let me go. Yeah, wow. So they really protect. I mean, it's great for the for the employees yeah, and for definitely. comfort and for yeah mental health. I would say even yes. it's far less anxious. Um, but that's neat. I, I think from a DevOps perspective, um, that's a really good piece to know. What other what other cultural differences have you heard from, you know, hearing us silly Americans talk about DevOps when we come over here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and you guys, I'm sure you go. Oh, that's an American thing. Or was, you know, there's always there's always these nuances, and and, and I think primarily the size of things <laughs> is is a bit different. If we talk about a large company in Belgium, we're probably talking about a very small company. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you know, put it in put it in perspective and put it in the right um, degree. I think it would be it would be probably better. But yeah, don't don't get me wrong. We do have large accounts here, and we do have those things, but. I think if you, if you look at the, the cultural difference, I think from a natural thing is that Europeans are probably less eager to just go like, yeah, let's do this. We're kind of like, hang on. We're very suspicious. We're kind of like, hang on. <laughs> what is it? And then after the what is it, it's like, is it going to benefit me? And then the next one in line is like, what is it going to cost? And, and and we're very, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say suspicious, but we're a little bit cautious right. when it comes to doing things. What I found out from a U.S. perspective, if you do a great pitch, the guys on board is like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> we don't do this. No. We kind of we kind of like, hang on, let me let me have a look at this. Let me come back to you yeah. <laughs> and and evaluate internally. That's what you see more and more. You, you know, European companies do. Um, unless if you're actually in the hotspot cities, like in London, Berlin, uh, you know, the, the really funky cities, that's where you see the culture from the U.S. actually coming up and saying, like, oh, what, what the hell, let's just do this, you know? <laughs> and, and a lot of these people who do that are pretty successful. Yeah. Because don't get me wrong, they still have that caution, but they actually tick the box prior to the meeting. You know, it's always interesting because that's always... Uh... It feels more like a DevOps culture versus like traditional legacy culture because we have we have very conservative companies in the U.S. that I mean, working at any bank, I've, I've dealt with a lot of the financial services oh, yeah. companies. I, I always say this: um, I can tell within probably two meetings whether or not a company could even be successful in DevOps. Mm-hmm. And if you have any language indicators like, well, we need to dot every I and cross every T, I'm out. I'm like, yep, thank you guys. <laughs> Thank you guys for meeting. Uh, I hope you enjoy your lunch. But uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're good. I, um, I had my fair share of financial <laughs> institutions as well. And I think, you know, especially the last ones where I basically had, I think the, the key stake, and this is, this is for our internal guys, and I think this is also for the banks to understand, you know, the higher up the food chain you go, the less of an issue that is. Right? Mm. And I think it's about understanding that value. So I had a big bank where they kind of went, oh, we need to build a cloud platform and we need to make sure that the, the mainframe is up and running and we need to meet customer apps and all of these things. And I look at him and I kind of go like, okay, so who are you building this for? Who is your today customer versus who is your competition? And he said, well, you know, any of the large brand banks. And I'm like, you sure that's your competition? 
And he looks at me and he goes like, yeah, why? And I'm like, well, you're in Ireland, right? Headquarters for Europe, for Microsoft, LinkedIn, Facebook, all of these guys who are looking at FinTech, mm -hmm. yeah? You sure another big bank is going to be your competitor? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, so have you heard of people like AYREX or, or any of those who basically do virtual coins and credit cards attached to it? And he goes like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, so should we maybe not consider that as being a potential competitor? And he's like, oh yeah. <laughs> but, but, but this is the thing, again, flaps. So they said, look at what they've got, where they need to process and manage and flow into. And I'm like, okay, so, if you're saying you're fully regulatory, and that means risk zero, yeah, that means everything needs to go to at least three months of approvals and checks and everything else. I'm like, so if you wanna take your FinTech approach and go through the standard regulatory, the reality is by the time you get something competitive to the FinTechs, the FinTechs are out of business and already a new one has started, right? And he's like, yes. So I'm like, okay, what if we do a spin-off? And he said, what do you mean a spin-off? And I'm like, okay, we take a tactical team that works with the regulatory while they boost up this fintech piece. So you actually take in regulatory inside your team and instead of building something, approving it for three months and then launching it, you're co-creating together with the fintech team something new that you then probably, because you've co-created it, don't need three months to approve it. You probably need two weeks. Yeah. yeah. And he said, oh, this is cool. So so, so again, part of my role at that time was, was to, to really go and say, hang on, it's not because you're classic that you cannot do this. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to make a horse yeah, do dog tricks. That's not going to work. So you've got to be more lean, you've got to be smaller, you've got to be more agile. So, so if that doesn't work with the horse, try a dog. <laughs> you know, try a cat, try something else. And he looked at me and he's like, yeah, but, but we're a bank. And I'm like, I get that. You are a bank. But the reality is that down the line, three, four years, will you still be a bank? You know, it's, it's so interesting because Chris said the same thing about um, a report that came out that's saying that a lot of big banks will be displaced by 2030. Yeah. And uh, it, it's weird because we, four years ago, I sat in a, um, in a meeting in, uh, well, I think everybody can look at my LinkedIn and see where I worked, but um, really, literally on Bryant Parkway in our corporate office where all the executives lived in New York and 42nd floor, we're sitting up there and in comes this CTO of a, of a up-and-coming tech company right now. I'm mm -hmm. not going to throw him under the bus, but um, he walks into the meeting. You know, none of us like wearing suits and ties, but <laughs> the dress code in that office was suits and ties because yes. it's literally right there. Uh, all the execs were there for, you know, band two, band one executives. Um, so we're all suited and tied up, and this person walks in with Beats headphones on, a T-shirt, uh, like torn jeans and like literally Birkenstocks, and <laughs> walks into the meeting and it's like... That's a fashion statement. Which oh. And look, I'm jealous. I'm jealous, but he's like, I'm the CTO of this company. And I'm like, I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is a legit company. Like, how is he getting away with this? But it's like, well, yeah. I'm a DevOps. And so it was like, <laughs> I gotta be cool. Like, this is the outfit. Yeah. But he had, 
it, so that that didn't set the table. I mean, I was cool with it because I'm like, this is the new thing, man. This is like mm-hmm. you're hip and with it when mm-hmm. you do this. And I'm like, yeah, man, come into this office dressed like that. And then I, but then he made the mistake in front of you know my boss, my boss's boss, his boss's boss, all the way up the chain mm. of saying, you guys are going to be displaced in three years. And the second he said that, I just looked over and I'm like, oh yeah, this meeting's over. <laughs> because, yeah. but now the reality is. They already knew that, right? They're, that's yeah. their biggest fear. You don't walk in and poke the bear and tell them. No, 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 no. Because when I took the job, their first thing was, "You're gonna, we're getting displaced by a company called Wealthfront. And that was their number one fear, was that in wealth management, this little tiny upstart, Wealthfront, I said it with Chris, but they have this thing on their website that they're marketing that says, we don't have a release cycle, we have a deploy button. And they're full CICD, but they literally put it up on the, as part mm-hmm. of their sales campaign. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I was told the story that in my interview process, like, we have to stop this because, and I'm pointing at the screen because that's what it was <laughs> when I was sitting in the interview room, but um, but they were saying, like, literally investors are always going to invest with, like, the most up-to-date information. Absolutely. Having information before anybody else is seen as a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. And how do we look when we're a 200-year-old entity who only releases new products every six months versus this company that's out here saying, we're giving you the latest and greatest tools to make the best decisions you can make. Mm-hmm. I mean, myself, I was like, oh, I better go look at Wealthfront. <laughs> be that's probably not what they were looking for. <laughs> no, no, but I was like, I might be moving some accounts later. No, but, and it, but that was the entire idea. And But then what was crazy was um, we built a system that could do you know, that sort of deploy. Mm-hmm. And immediately hit resistance from every other part of the bank saying, you can't do that. We have to follow our, our release management and, mm-hmm. you know, we have to follow this. And it was just, it was very painful. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot now is our message is that um, a lot of these companies will become very agile, very fast and just their development team. And then they're like, yeah, we're agile, we win. They're not. But no. they've not actually no. moved the needle at all. No. And this is, I think, where the ecosystem comes in. So, so when you do this and you do have a pocket of intellect that is agile, yeah. Mm-hmm. What you then need to do and what a lot of companies kind of go and they kind of go like, oh, done. We're agile. Yay. No, that's when it starts. So what you need, what I, what I always said, and, and people quote me on this, you need to make agile sexy. Mm. You need to make sure that everybody inside your bank wants to have some piece of it. Yeah. In what kind of way. So you, you try to find, I, I have a rule of three once it comes to transformation, innovation, and everything. One third of your employees get it. Yep. They are there. They understand where everything goes into, and, and they're more prone than what you think. If you just dig a little bit deeper down the surface, they get it. Make sure that they are in that tag team. One third will eventually get it. <laughs> yeah, it will take a year, two years, three years, four years, five years. It doesn't matter because even if you're changing, Bigger companies is not a big bang. We're not going to go day one, we were this, day two, we're that. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. So your run rate and your classic business needs to continue. So that second group will continue that with a view of how do we then you know, get everything into that transformation piece. One third will never get it. <laughs> yeah? Do not get the horses to do dog tricks. Yeah? Just... <laughs> And I'm, I'm saying this with, with all the loving, you know, 100% I'm, I'm not... this is the t-shirt next year that we make for you is <laughs> do not get horses to do dog tricks. That is now but your tagline is... <laughs> and it is perfect. But it is like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with people who don't get it. 
Let just let them do what they love to do. And guess what? You still have a lot of tasks that are classic. You you will always have these things because guess what? We're still COBOL programmers. Well, financial <laughs> financial institutions by law have to keep everything at least five to seven years, right? Yeah, yeah. So those are the next 10 years that these people will have a job. So do not actually force them to do stuff that they don't like. Right. But with these three groups, it means that you've got to have one hell of a good HR team yeah, yeah. to identify, talk, and have that debate with these people. Because what a lot of people are doing wrong, and, and I heard this also from you earlier on, is that they try to force people into an environment, they get them all excited, and then nothing happens. Mm. So the good people, the group that gets it, kind of go like, I'm done. Right. I go look for another one who actually already does it. Mm. Yeah. So you need to get them involved to a level that you decide on your own. It could be very involved. It could be just aware. Yeah. The group that will eventually get it, you need to start prepping them. You need to start to get them aware with, you know, all of the acronyms, the slang, the culture, everything that goes with it. So you invite them sometimes to these things, but you don't actually let them actively participate but you let them see how it runs right so automatically they will take over this behavior and automatically in like two three four years they will they will take it and the last group it's very important that HR says look we are not gonna get rid of you you are very valuable to us you are the core backbone of this company yeah talk to me and tell me what you like talk to me and tell me what you don't like and it has to be crystal clear and most of the times, these people are the ones who are already nearing pension, yeah, by default, right, right? Or are the ones who have very specific jobs, and as long as that job is needed, you can still have people for that. It doesn't matter, right? So I I remember when I was at ING, you had guys, you know, looking at you know the, the transfers of the bank and kind of comparing the money and seeing where everything sits. That will never be our job. You know, because guess what? You, you have a, a, a mock-up or whatever coming up and you kind of go like, oh, that was a manual interaction because those were transfers at a certain number of numbers mm -hmm. that manually needed to be checked. So that still happens. Does it mean that you have to like take these people up? No, but you tell them how to do their classic job in a more efficient way. And that makes them also involved because guess what? You're talking to them. So they must be important. Right. Right. right? And I think this is where... It, the companies that have done it correctly, kudos to their HR, really. Senior management and HR, it's about that inclusion, involvement, and it's about understanding and communication. I think if you don't communicate to your people, people will start to assume. Mm -hmm. And one manager once said to me, pardon my French, if you assume you make an ass out of you and me, and it does. Mm -hmm. Because people start to think, and they never think positive things. No. That's the nature of people. <laughs> you never think, oh, I'm going to get a promotion. <laughs> no, you always think, oh, they're going to kick me out. Okay. That's what you always think, right? So as long as you communicate and as long as you are sure that everybody's involved and everybody understands what you're doing, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody needs to start changing things, but be transparent. And I think when you do that, funny enough, you'll see that that one third is actually a smaller group than what you originally expected. You're starting to hit on something that... Uh... I don't know if you're supposed to have epiphanies on podcasts, but there's uh, <laughs> Ta -da! well, you're, you're thinking something. I've never, so I've done a lot of work on just literally since 2008 around what would now be called the digital transformation. So helping companies oh, yeah, yeah, 
transform, you know, and now we're calling that digital. I don't get me started on that because it's a pet peeve of mine that I could never <laughs> let go. Everything's um, digital these days. What does it mean? <laughs> I was an electrical engineering minor. Digital has a very specific zero and ones. Yeah. <laughs> so we were analog before in all of our data centers? Uh, no. Anyway. Um, but no, the, the part that's, you know, in doing those transformations, the part that I don't usually, I mean, we did, we did have an initiative when I came into that team at the bank that was all around managing, uh, kind of similar to what you're saying, like one third are going to be our early adopters, um, two thirds will be, you know, people we can bring with and we know they'll get there someday. And yeah, one, uh, one whole third of it was we knew we were going to be moving people either into different roles or out, yep. right? And it was, and we actually had HR prepared for that because it was a, it was a massive undertaking, right? Mm -hmm. it was, um, you know, I, one of the things with scale that I still to this day try and figure out how we were ever thinking that this was going to work, but um, we had 30,000 people in our development community that we mm. wanted to transform to Agile. Mm. Now, to give you a little bit of perspective, we had three pilots running with three pilot teams, pods mm -hmm. of 150 each. <laughs> it was taking us two months duh. per pod. <laughs> yeah, well, duh. And out of the first three pods, only one was successfully transforming anything they did. The other two went right back to what they've always done. Oh my God, but the groups are So we had 30,000 and we had only done 1%. So how sexy did you make those pods? Well, so what's really interesting, the one pod that was successful, the one pod that was successful, the way they became successful was they actually in, involved their application owner. And the application owner for the first time ever, I did this whole thing where I talk about why executives want DevOps, right? And mm -hmm. it's just something that I need to get published. But um, And it literally goes back to the fact that they have this bag of money every year that they then throw to the development team and say, these are the features, you know, we did our executive planning, we set our strategy. If you're a scaled agile person, this is where we set our corporate strategy at the top. Here's the epics and stories that we want you to achieve this year because that's going to drive these features to my customers and drive value. Boom, yeah. done. So then they throw these bags of money over to the development teams. And in a waterfall, or <laughs> waterfall, wagile, or what did he call it? What did he call the? Uh, uh, oh, Chris just coined the new hashtag that we got to remember. Um, oh, oh, I forgot it already. <laughs> I know, but what was it? It was like tormented. Tagile. Tagile. Tragile. Tragile. Tragic. Tragic. Agile. That's what yeah, it was. Yeah. Tragile. Um, yeah. So these companies, these teams, will then go away, and they're like gone for three to four months yeah. planning, and pretty soon the person with the money is like. Um, it's now you know April. I have not seen a single line of code. You know so where that comes team, from because I, yeah. that person that person needs to go back to their management as well. And I think this is what we need to understand. It's not that they want to annoy us, but okay. they also need to report. They also have a boss. They also of need course. to understand where that money is going and how we plan it. And right? that boss has a boss, and then and there's that a boss board has of a boss, and, and that <laughs> boss has a boss, and until you hit like the board, even yeah. the board needs to understand what you're yeah. doing, right? Well, then they have stockholders and bingo, shareholders. Bingo, bingo. Yeah. So, so it's not that you know. As long as that visibility is there and that communication is there, it's never going to be an issue. Well, that's what the one team that was successful. They and, and by the way, this was this is how big companies work. But uh, they kind of went first off. They did two things. One, the guy that and it just happened to be a guy. But, you know, he it's uh, the guy that was running the team said, "Okay, here's what I have to do. I have to fly this entire project under the radar from most of the leadership in our in our group yeah. because I need to be successful." Because if I'm successful, then I can go upstream and say, guys, I've been Absolutely. trying this I've been trying this new thing and it's working. And then once I had that crutch to stand on, then it would be accepted. Yeah. Um, 
But just to go up there and say, we want to do Agile and it's going to take this much effort, they'd be like, no, we're never funding that. But that's the risk state, right? So they, they want zero risk. So what you do is you actually do the garage work, as we call it. Nice. You know, like Bill Gates in the garage, the garage work. There you go. Once, you know, the car's ready, you take it out. You yeah. do not take it out before. Yeah. <laughs> and if you know that you failed, then it's in the garage. Who knows? Nobody knows, right? Right, right. <laughs> and there's this some money that got lost somewhere down the line, which is probably just a, a pocket pocket kind of thing. In Excel, you can do a lot of good pivot tables, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not a problem, but it's about that risk and it's about sticking your neck out. Because of the fact that we're in a digital transformation, not a lot of people are actually taking that public risk of, I'll do this. Right. Unless if they really know it's going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So it's all going to be skunk works. And when those skunk works start, that's where the internal communication is very important, but where also your sponsor, that's your, that's your holy grail. You need to keep him or her in the loop because the more your sponsor knows, the more credibility they can get up there yeah. and the quicker the skunk course can actually become works. Well, so it's really interesting. And, and uh, so there's two things that came to mind when you said that. One was to finish the story about um, the yeah, sorry, sponsor. Sorry, No, no, it's the sponsor. This yeah. is exactly. So, um, it's, it all has to do with politics and reporting, but basically the application owner that actually owns the product, let's say mm -hmm. the product owner that has the money that's funding all of these people is a different reporting chain than, than these yeah. people. These people are in a centralized IT yes. function always, or a dev always, function or whatever. Always so their leadership is, is not really directly tied to this leadership. No. So what's really interesting and what happened that made this successful, this person flew their team under the radar for three sprints. We had three sprints out of them before uh, we ever kind of publicly announced. And the person they brought with them was that application owner, the mm -hmm. person with the money. Mm -hmm. was very interesting. I remember sitting in this meeting and literally uh, it, this person was kind of rolling back. This is a replay of everything we've done around this. And to the business owner over here that mm -hmm. was in charge of the corporate shared IT, they were very much a naysayer. They're like, uh, you know, this is great, but there's no way I'm going to scale this. Like, why are we, why are we spending time on this when we should be spending time mm -hmm. business as usual? And this person, the application owner, she stood up and she like slammed her hands down on the table. And she was like, I have never in my entire career been as pleased as I am right now with the progress that this team has made. If you put a bullet in this, I'm going to come after you because, and, and I was just like, whoa, but and then I just looked over and the person that had been flying under the radar just started smiling because mm -hmm. it, it had proved true. Yes. If you make your customer happy, then it, it's the right thing to do and that's going to win. Um, Horse flaps. And yeah. And so that's literally what made their, that one team was successful because of all that. It was a yeah. political kind of risk game. And so that brings me to my second thought that popped in my head. Have I ever told you about Sheeple? No. Oh, God. So this was something, I can't take credit for it. Um, <laughs> Sheeple. Yeah, sheeple. <laughs> and, and it's crazy because uh, once you've seen a sheeple, then you end up seeing sheeple everywhere. Um, it's kind of <laughs> like uh, M. Night Shyamalan, I see dead people. I mm. see sheeple. So this guy tells me at the bank, and sorry, it's a short story, but it's kind of funny. But it goes to this idea that you need somebody to stick their head up and take the risk. Yes. So at the bank, I started presenting... I joined there like early, like the end of March, early April. I, I then started planning and like June or July, I started going on a tour mm -hmm. saying, this is what we've planned and designed. And we're, we're going on a road show, right? We were trying to educate, be transparent, DevOpsy. Yeah. 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 So the guy, <laughs> I, have a, I have a guy who was actually a really nice guy. He'd been there like 18 years mm -hmm. and, he, and he pulled me aside and he's like, Hey, come here, young blood. And I'm like, yeah, what's up? And he goes, <laughs> 
He goes, I, I want to tell you a little story. And I'm like, all right, this should be good. And uh, he goes, you know, I've been here a long time, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, you're, you're an, old, an old timer, right? He goes, well, not really. I, I'm only 18 years in. I was like, that's not a long time. He goes, oh, there's people here have been here 30, 32 years. Yeah. He goes, 18 is only about halfway. Um, I was like, wow. Um, and to you, that was already like, oh. I was on my 14th job in 21 years. Yeah, I, it's something that I was not, it's very foreign to me. Uh, so anyway, so I talk, he said to me, he goes, let me tell you this story about sheeple. And, and I go, sheeple? And he goes, yeah, you'll notice to be successful. He's like, you want to be here for a while? And I was like, I mean, I had every intention to be here. Yeah. And he goes, well, let me tell you the story about sheeple. He goes, if you look at all of us as kind of being sheep in a herd, he goes, what you'll find is every year management towards the end of the year comes and takes wool off of our backs. And so long as your head's down and you're just kind of marching along to the beat of the drum, we'll all just take a little bit of wool off your back and it'll grow back. You'll be fine. And everybody's happy and, and, and you'll be fed and you'll be hungry. He goes, but every once in a while you get a couple of these sheep that just start sticking their heads up because they're curious or they want to do these new things or they see something shiny. And he goes, those sheep tend to have their heads cut off when that shearing blade comes by and, and well, they end up on the dinner table. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what, four months into this job? And I'm, I'm looking at the guy and I'm just like, uh, am I the sheep with the head up? And he's like, well, you know, I don't want you to read into it. He goes, but you're making a lot of noise. That was a hint. That was <laughs> a I was clear just hint. Like, oh my God. And, but honestly, it's like that. It's just 100%, like that. you're saying it, yeah. takes that, it takes that sheep that's willing to stick its head up and go, yeah. guys, there's a better way to doing this. I want to try something new. And you may get your head chopped off, but you may also be you know, the person that ushers in this great transformation and becomes a hero. But I don't know. Uh, unfortunately, the culture, we call them uh, corporate antibodies at the, mm. at the company. The, the virus that we were was mm -hmm. trying to infect the system with a new way of doing things. And we had corporate antibodies come out and try and uh, <laughs> cut our heads off and put us on the dinner table. Uh, but coming back to that point, I think if you find somebody who is willing to be a sheeple, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, help, was... help them in skunk works yeah. and prove it before actually, you know, you stick your head out. And I think this is this is where I, the sexiness comes in. So you got you got to do it low key, find a team that really wants to do this, that really wants to be part of it. And most of the times it's not their core day to day thing. Yeah. But but empower them. Make sure right. that they can get there. And once you have a success, then it's not just one sheep sticking their head out. It's the whole herd. Right. So they're not going to put the blade out, right? And that's what you want. You want the herd to stick their head out and kind of go like, there, you know, we're there. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but that's what sheep do. So, that's what sheep do. <laughs> so, so, yeah. And, and maybe there's a border collie down the line who goes like, oh, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. But, but. Wow. <laughs> yeah. For those know, of yeah. you at home, our analogies are all over the place, but I'm loving it. Uh, no, but the thing is, you know. Can't teach a horse dog tricks. No, no, no. Sheeple no, no. Uh, and border collies going wow. Yeah. But, you know, the horse and dog tricks, it's a border collie who does the tricks, right? Yeah, so so you it. need to find the right border collie. And then maybe your shepherd will guide the whole company in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I feel for. Um, I actually, I actually, have, it, it, it was interesting because it's taken about four years, but I went from, Ooh. I think I went through the stel, the, those 12 stages of grief, but, uh, or however many stages there, I don't know, but, but there's a whole part that now I've kind of come back around to having empathy for those big companies because yes. it's, they have every it's intention of doing the right thing. Yeah. They want to modernize, they want to improve, they want to digitally transform. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but the problem is they have people that have been there 20 years who are comfortable and safe and. Mm -hmm. And the company, you know, their risk profile is safe. Mm -hmm. They've kept mm -hmm. themselves out of the newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yeah, a lot of people always ask me, they're like, uh, you know, you, you've been an executive a couple of, and I, and I've been a mid-level executive a couple of times or executives for a reseller, which I don't think really counts. Um, Thank you. But <laughs> <laughs> sorry. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I've been one. I just didn't think it was like, you know, when I look at some of the executives at like, yeah, you know, no, big, big right. companies, it's You're just, right. they do a different thing. Um, but anyway, my point was, it's like this perception thing. It was like the service management thing. What do you see the world differently as, as an executive? And, and I actually boil the entire experience down. I'm like, okay, I learned four new tricks when I was mm-hmm. an executive. I was like, and anytime I talk to an executive, I try and keep this in mind that this person sitting across the table from me probably thinks the same way I did when I was in that chair. Yeah. And these are the four things. This is my life as an executive, according to Eric. And, and you know, it's not trademark. It's just, it's probably not even that smart. Yeah, so there's these four things. And the fourth one, unfortunately, I don't see enough executives worrying about, but I'll give you kind of my take on it. So I always said an executive only cares about three things, like, and that one's pretty broad across all of them. Mm-hmm. And it's, is this going to save me money? Is this going to drive top-line revenue and make me a hero mm-hmm. and, and make the company a hero and make my stock price go up and make me more money? Yes. Or three, is this going to put me in jail or in the newspaper or have me lose my job? So those are the three things. So it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. CapEx, OpEx reduction, top line revenue generation, mm-hmm. or risk. Mm-hmm. Those are the three things that they mostly mm-hmm. care about. Now, the fourth thing that I would like to say an enlightened executive will care about is, and, and what I found makes me not a very good executive is, you know, when I was at the reseller and I was an executive, we, we it was just six of us that started the company. And then we got to 100 people. Mm. And there were nights that I would lay awake in a hotel room hoping that a deal would close because I would be sitting there thinking like, Oh my God, like it, when it was just six of us, it was on us to pay our mortgages and our families. And it was only six families. And most of us had been pretty far along in our careers, but now we have a hundred families, a hundred families that are, that are relying on us to make sure that these things close and that we're Mm -hmm. successful Mm -hmm. and that there's, you know, that we don't miss payroll or that we don't do that. And it was like, oh, my God. And that was the part. And it's this empathy for your employees. And that's mm-hmm. the fourth thing that I think a really good executive yeah. starts with. That is their primary concern is, you know, am I actually leading an amazing team of people that are motivated because they love being here? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that should be a primarily an executive's yeah. job. But that tends to be kind of modern DevOpsy thinking is that, you know, you flip the leadership on its head. But no, so those are those four things. So when I sit across from another executive, I'm typically always trying to make my message resonate for Am I going to save you money? Am I going to make you more money? Or am I going to keep you out of jail or, you know, lower the risk that you can end up in the papers? No, um, so that's, it's, so that's why sometimes I think it's fancy, but on the other sides, it's like being an executive is not that fancy. It's just, it's full of fear and risk yes. and exposure and, you know, having to make sure that, and, and transformation becomes very difficult then because it's like, if you wanted to transform the way you write code, if you're a developer and I'm like, well, I was a .NET developer and I'm going to go try Java. There's not much risk there. Like, go no. try Java. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you're an executive Ooh, who yeah, now has yeah, yeah. 40,000 developers working for them and goes, we're going to make a shift as a company and we're going to transition all these developers to Java from, you know, that becomes a little riskier. It's yes. like, you know, you're going to have failures. You know, you're going to cause outages. You know, you're going to have. Yeah. So I can definitely see. And I, like I said, I tend to empathize now for these roles where mm-hmm. I had no empathy before, but now it's once you sit in that seat, you're like, Oh, I get this. Now. This yeah, is yeah, this yeah. is a whole different ball game. Yeah. One of but the yeah. first things when I go in with executives, I kind of go like, like you know, everybody's looking at Uber, Airbnb, uh, all of those startups, right? And I say to them, I said, look, you know, you'd never be an Uber. 
it'll never be an Airbnb. So <laughs> no, but it is like that because guess what? Uber did not have legacy. Yeah, Uber no. did not have a lot of people. Uber did not have the staff. Uber Uber did not have the data centers. They did not have all of that, right? Nor did Airbnb. Yeah. yeah. So how you as a company where you are today are looking at Uber and Airbnb, it means you need to be assetless, aka fire everybody, aka tear down the data centers, do everything that <laughs> it's impossible. Right. Yeah. So why do you set the bar so high? Yeah, well, that's the whole unicorn it's, theory. It's like if it, if that's the unicorn. You're theory, not going right? to be a unicorn. You, you, you're not going to be a unicorn. So, what I always say to executives: Do not be afraid of dreaming. It's not that you need to be a unicorn, but take your first realistic dream of where you think you can be, and then work your way backwards. And they kind of go like, "No, no, I, but I am dreaming." And I'm like, "No, no, 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 no." What you are dreaming for, and let me take the Uber analogy. Right, right. Yeah. So. You are sitting here and you're going, I want to go from point A to point B. I'll call a taxi company. That's what you're doing. You're not going, I can go from point A to point B using an Uber, using a Lyft, using a Get. Using, you're not thinking like that. You're thinking, I want a taxi to take me from point A to point B. That is looking where you are to the future. Mm -hmm. I said, if you say I want transportation, whatever that might mean, right? It could be a flying drone, yeah. If that's the flying drone, fine. Then we'll work our way back from the flying drone. So for a flying drone, you need a flying license. You need a drone. <laughs> you yeah. need some of the other things. You actually don't need a road or a car. So get your dream. Get your dream right. Get it realistic, because obviously, when when you dream, you dream big. It's right. not going to be a flying drone, yeah. But it might be a helicopter. So, so, so work your way back. God knows they daydream about flying cars every. But work <laughs> and your way back. Teleportation. If we could get teleportation. Oh, beat me up, Scotty. Oh love it. God. Love it. Love it. For sure. But if you work your way back, you'll find different paths to your today reality than when you look at the reality and then peer at the future. Because peering at the future, you go through the paths that you've already taken, mm -hmm. and they kind of go, "Oh, that makes sense." That's really good. I and I like think that. a lot of those executives, after two, three hours, they kind of go like, this is what I want. Because they never really think about where it is. You know, the same thing with the bank analogy. If you look at, you know, the fintechs, you know, God knows whatever is going to come up tomorrow. It could be completely disruptive of, of the business. But you're now doing this, looking at what is there, trying to compete, and by definition being too late already because it exists. Right. Yeah? What is beyond that? Maybe I can be a first entrant in a new market and not a late entrant in an existing market. Actually, that's one of the most, um, so, so Chris Pope mentioned the CFO, Mike yeah. Scarpelli. When I first came to ServiceNow, we had a meeting where we got to talk to, um, it was Frank Slootman at the time and then mm -hmm. and Scarpelli. And it was really funny because we were saying to them, we, you know, all of us were ex C somethings and we were part of an advisory council. So we were, we basically came to them and said, you know, where do you see us in the marketplace and who's our biggest competition? And it was all the standard, you know, yeah. jargony, BS, whatever. And the coolest thing that I've ever had anybody say to me, it was what he answered back with, which was, uh, he goes, you know what, quite frankly, I'm, I'm sick of talking about this. Like, we need to go create a market. Like, yeah. there is no market for yeah. what we want to do. We want to literally make the world of work better. Like, there, this isn't a like a me too thing. We yeah. want to, we're trying to go to a place that's never been done before. And 
and it was funny because uh, Sloopman at the time was talking about this story about how, you know, fundamentally we went from manila folders because he's a he's an OG, right? So he had manila folders that would be in his physical inbox every day, and he would sit down to work and he would open a folder, inner mm-hmm. office memo, write on what he needed to do, put that in his outbox, and mm-hmm. later he'd have an assistant take all the stuff out of his outbox, and he goes. I now have an exchange inbox that does the same thing. He goes, it's, we haven't fundamentally done anything different. We just no, made it true. a little faster. True. And he goes, when are we going to finally fundamentally change the way we do work? That's where I'm thinking. That's the vision I have. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, but that, that's like the future. Yeah. So he had a vision and then he went back to where do we now stand today that's and exactly how, how do I do those steps to get to that? Yeah, but it was this idea of we're not going to just take place no. in the market. We're going to create a market. Like, Bingo. We're going to create a new thing that's totally different. And that takes some big dreams. And I got to say that, you know, being here three and a half years, I've seen this company do some amazing things from that no, perspective. No, absolutely. Uh, where, where when I hear it at first, the critic in me is like, well, that's a great that's great marketing, but we'll uh, you've see. heard it before, right? Of I course. had the same thing. I kind of, I'm like, wait, I heard it before, but, yeah. but then you kind of walk in, and specifically the new hire experience, I was like, Ooh, whoa, this is this is neat. <laughs> um, and I think you the know, Kool Aid is strong. <laughs> yeah, the Kool Aid is strong. <laughs> but and then I you think, find out it's pretty real, and you're it, like, whoa, yeah. this Kool Aid's no joke. Yeah, yeah. and I, I, I kind of like when when I, when I joined, and Chris said, you know, we do eat our own dog food, and I kind of went like, yeah, right, everybody says that, right. Until he then came up with the agent app, and I went back. Ooh, one up for everything. Oh, cool. The uh, <laughs> I'm so jealous of all you newer hires because. Oh, uh, you didn't have that. <laughs> no, three and a half years ago, uh, we didn't drink our own champagne or eat our own dog food or whatever the term is. But uh, but honestly, the the view that was kind of your onboarding. I'm sure you have the new HR onboarding thing that has literally like all of your deliverables and how yes. to get to everything and yes. get access for it. It's, it's Freaking brilliant! Yeah, yeah. If you've never, I did been everything through, prior to actually joining. I was like, "That's <laughs> insane." So for like the first two months I was here, it was, uh, "How do I get a bat? How do I get a corporate card? How do I get this? How do I get it's a MyFi thing?" Very easy. Well, it is now. Chatbot. <laughs> it is now, but that's what I'm saying. Like the fundamental shift that we had with onboarding, yes. like that didn't exist when I started. But now it's like, I, I watched a new hire on our team, and he was, uh, I was helping kind of mentor. You know, we get mm-hmm. assigned a mentor. And he pulls it up on the screen. I'm like, what is this? And he goes, well, you didn't have this? I'm like, this is cheating. I'm like, this isn't even fair. <laughs> he goes, yeah, man, I got this like uh, three weeks ago before I started. And I started yeah, doing yeah. all this stuff before I even yeah. got to work. I'm like, this is so cool. Yeah. And, like, and the beauty is. I was like, I almost want to quit and start over again <laughs> so I can go through that process. <laughs> no, but the thing is, I, I actually I probably shouldn't do this. But I, I, I do do it. And I, I did it earlier on at the, at the booth as well. I, I pull up this app and I show customers it's, and I'm like, look, this is my onboarding. And they look at me and, and, and there was a guy from, from American Express and they look at me and he's like, what is that? And I'm like, that's our app. One single app. That's sort of just and everything is in yeah. there. You know, all the HR applications are in there. All of the ITSM stuff is in there. Everything is in there. And he goes like, oh, cool. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And it's on an yeah, iPhone. It is cool. I don't need a laptop anymore. Nope. If I really wanted, obviously I'm not going to do that, but if I really wanted to, I could do my work from the iPhone and the iPad. Obviously not presenting, that's a bit of a tricky one. <laughs> so literally the last mile, so I'm going to give Colin O'Brien props because he's trying to make the switch from getting rid of it. And, you know, we've all probably tried at certain points, but the last piece that he says is coming out in iOS um, is right now we can have two PowerPoints open and copy yeah, and paste between them. He said that's the last thing that's missing from an iPad replacing his laptop yeah. is the ability to copy and paste from one thing to another without 
closing the file, opening another file, pasting, closing the file, because that's what you have to do today. But not yeah, so he said he's. Uh, I'm going to give him some tips. Not necessarily. You can get around that. Yeah. All right. Well, you need to call him up and tell him how to get around that. Oh, he's but, downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I assume it's kind of late. They might have gone there. But anyway, yeah. the point is, yes, the future is always kind of coming. That's the neat part about this entire industry is that we it get is. to see stuff. In three and a half years, the onboarding process changed dramatically. Trust me, and yeah. it's so cool now because yeah, I, I show everybody that too. I'm like, check this out. Like, this yeah. is what you could do. And the thing um, is, you don't have to fake your enthusiasm because you really love using I'm this. Right? I'm genuinely like, oh, <laughs> I wish to God that was mine because yeah. my pain, mine was painful, right? And that's it, this tagline when we when we're yeah, if we're being fully transparent, which we can be because this is a podcast and that's cool, but. Um, like when we heard our new marketing about we make the world of work work better for people, it was like, wow, that sounds real lofty. But then it started to become like reality. Like yes. it, we literally, even that onboarding thing, it's like, what's one of the most painful process to go through? Oh, starting a new job. Yes. Like everybody's done it. Well, yeah. If you haven't, I'd be shocked. But most everybody's done it. I've done it 14 times in my career. You probably hit like the, the top notch. You're like a... Yeah, you know, it's I, an I get, expert. I get bored easily, but no. And so I see, I've seen 14 different onboarding processes and I can yeah. tell you not one of them was fun. Not mm. one. Mm. And then you see this sort just of thing. Just for the sake up. of it, just do it again. Yeah. Like I said, <laughs> I kind of just want to go through the onboarding process again just to see how much nicer the new version is. But yeah. uh, but no, I was jealous. I was it, when, when something causes you to be jealous. Oh yeah. <laughs> then you know they've hit the mark because yes. I'm like, uh, yeah, his, he was on our team. I'm like, Jason, this isn't fair, man. Like, this isn't even funny. Like, why do you even have a mentor? You don't need a mentor. Like, you've got a chatbot mentor. Yeah, you've got a freaking AI. Just ask the AI and leave me alone. And yeah, he was. Yeah, joking. but coming to the AI, I think you know, I, I, you know, I'm also doing AI and machine learning for Chris, yeah. not just DevOps. And I think you know, I've been on some boards uh, working with AI people and everything. And then yesterday, I even met a guy working for the university who basically does. You know, um, kind of like predictions on on life quality with people with cancer, and and it's staggering. I think we're at the verge of understanding what AI could really mean to us. And I think if you then look at where companies are, where the numb jobs could be taken over by AI, and where we go to, not reactive but predictive, where we go into a world where you know your phone would tell you or or your whatever you have as a device, because it probably won't be a phone anymore will tell you that, hey, there's a traffic jam you might not want to leave now, or tomorrow you might want to do this. Um, the things I've done with some of the companies that I worked previously with, I was at the innovation board of, uh, of Adidas, it's staggering what these guys are doing. And I think, you know, we, we're scratching the surface. Now. We're, not, we're not really doing AI yet. I think once we get past the GDPR, the data, and the whole legal side of it, and, and we get to the point where we get security right, we get everything right, life as we know it is going to change. Oh, It's going to change down. dramatically. And well, I think... Elon Musk even said that on a Joe Rogan podcast recently about the, yeah. the idea that once we open that box, it's going to... Human beings will evolve. Like, it, it will be a... Whether we want to or not, yeah. it will evolve the way we live. And Dave Wright blew my mind one time with mm -hmm. a presentation that he did. And he did a presentation to us and said... Here's something that's very interesting when you start to have these thought experiments. He goes, right now, statistically, 80% of all organ donations come from car accidents. Yes. If we have self-driving cars and mm. artificial intelligence and the crash rate goes down to literally like 1% from what it is today, he said, 
everybody thinks this is amazing, this is impactful, this is so great. But this weird butterfly effect is now yes. we don't have organs for donation and people are going to live longer and people are going to have less risk. And so it's just even that little, mm-hmm. and I was like, it, he, it was random in kind of a presentation he did for us, but it was something he had just been kind of noodling on. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. dude, that's insane. Like, I, I haven't insane. even considered any of this stuff. And he goes, no, this is what we're trying to think of right now. It's like these weird side effects or butterfly effects of artificial intelligence. And those are the ones we can think of. Those are the ones we can see coming. We don't even know what the ones are going to be. 90% we don't know. I think if you look at what, what, let me, let me quote Adidas on this one because they, they did a pretty good job. I think. I love the way you say (laughs) Adidas. Adidas. I know. You got to say it like American. No, it's not American. Adidas Adidas. is is German based. (laughs) Herzogenaurach, it's called Adidas. Hey, you speak what, six languages? Yes. All right, see, I speak one. <laughs> English, so, Sorry, for your sake, Adidas. <laughs> Thank you. Adidas. <laughs> That's what you got to give it, America. Yeah. So so one of their goals is not necessarily being a sports company, but trying to, you know, go into the healthy citizen kind of environment. And they oh. said, you know, getting rid of excuses. And I looked at one of the execs and I said, what do you mean by getting rid of excuses? And he's like, well, let me give you one example, the green light run. And I'm like, what's a green light run? And he goes like, well, we did this kind of thing in Tokyo when we opened up the running store in Tokyo and we wanted people to run in the city of Tokyo. And he said, nobody wanted to run in Tokyo because there's too many traffic lights, right? What was that? Uh, I don't know. It was a beep. What beeped? I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. We'll see what, what beeped. And he said, nobody wants to run with traffic lights, right? Because you're running, you're warm, and then all of a sudden you have to stop. I don't know what's beeping. I don't even know. Me neither. Is it the camera? I don't know. All right, so go ahead. Greenland, so, we'll just keep going. So, yeah. So, so he said, if we take away the excuses, you can run, right? And I said, what do you mean with excuses? And he's like, well, if you don't have a, a red light, you, you can run, right? And I'm like, yes. So he's like, we have Runtastic. We have these little babies. Oh, the, the iWatches. And I think it's a GoPro. I think it's, it's dying. Yeah. So we have these. So when we do these things, we know exactly how fast you're running. We know exactly with GPS positioning where you are. We know exactly how the traffic lights are set up, right? So. So we take away the excuse. Okay, green light, back to Adidas. Adidas, yes. <laughs> so, so what if we take away the red lights? Yeah. Then you can run, right? Theoretically, yeah. Yes. So they said, we know how the traffic lights work. We have the algorithm. Yeah. We know how fast you're running. Yeah. Using Runtastic, Strobe, or whatever. Nice. We have these little devices that locate you in GPS positioning. So, let's AI the hell out of that. So they actually did this. They let guys run in Tokyo, city center at night because they, they didn't want right. to you know, have any accidents or anything like that, but it runs. So you can run 5 miles, 10 miles, 20 miles, 25 miles, whatever you want, without hitting a single red 
like. <laughs> so does anybody chase you? Because that's what it would take for me to run. <laughs> we could potentially get somebody to chase yeah, you. We we're going to need AI that actually has these people chase me with like, I don't know, a knife or something. <laughs> oh, we could, we could, you know, one of the things taser, that they... A taser, that, uh, that's it. That will probably be down in South Africa, somebody chasing you with a taser. <laughs> but but I think, you know, if, if for instance, and, I, and, and then it comes back to motivation. So then they said, what if, and this, this has not been implemented yet, but this was a thought stream. What if you could get your health insurance only at half price because you're sporting, because you're doing the effort. Yeah. Would that incentivize you? Or what if you are a heart patient or whatever, we can then monitor you and you can then make sure that your heart is better or healthier. Yeah. yeah. Or what if, if you do do the effort, we'll make sure that next time you're in hospital, you don't have to pay for it. That would incentivize people, right? Yeah. And well, I they think, definitely claim it. That's been a big thing about the wearables. But it, it also, even in the States, we don't have GDPR or we, we do have HIPAA, which is probably on the healthcare yes, side. Yes, HIPAA is on our side as is well. Is it too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's where they have a lot of questions about the data. Again, it's fears of the data. Like now that you're tracking all of my information, they always have this big brother idea that people are going to use it negatively for bad things. Mm. That's um, what I said before. You know, people never think positively. Right, of data and my data, and they're all think that their data is sacred. It's like, yeah, but, but not sacred. Let me let me go into the healthcare piece because I think I have a very strong opinion on that. Okay. A, an an EPDM or electronic patient file, yeah, mm -hmm. does not currently belong to the patient. It belongs to the hospital or the doctor that actually took the file and wrote it down. Is that here in Europe? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, if you take that originality of ownership of data away from the doctor in the hospital and you actually put it where it belongs, a.k.a. the patient, mm -hmm. you would not have a GDPR file. Because I, as a person, with my file, I can choose who I share it with. Exactly. Yeah, we, we've had that in the States, too, and we deal with a lot of health. It's the yeah. idea that if we could move the patient information to the patient mm -hmm. and let you control your data dissemination, then yeah. it would be a lot more... Absolutely. You know, controlled and private and whatever. So because because it's a bit schizophrenic these days. Because if I go to Doctor A, he will create a patient file. Yeah. If I go to Doctor B, he will create a patient file. If I then miraculously go to friends and have a bit of an accident, I will go to Hospital C, who again will create a patient file. Those three patient files are not synchronized. Correct. So if I am allergic to I don't know nuts, gluten, penicillin, whatever. Yeah. Doctor A might know it. Dr. B might know it because guess what? They are my house doctors. They mm -hmm. know a little bit of history. But the hospital will not know it because I'm normally not there. I'm visiting. Right. So they have absolutely no idea. So A, they have to rerun all the tests. B, costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And C, they might not even run the test, which is even worse because if I'm allergic to penicillin, pen penicillin? No, you don't, I don't get it. You get it. Penicillin. Yeah. Penicillin. There we go. <laughs> I don't know how they'd say it, like Adidas. Adidas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting well, it's a bit it's I'm getting thirsty. A long time yeah, ago. I'm thirsty. So if I'm allergic to that one, yeah, that <laughs> avoid one. it. <laughs> that could be catastrophic. If if somebody injects me, oh yeah. Sure. That could be like total five minutes dead done. And it happens funny enough, and I'm not, I don't want to scare people, but it happens on a daily basis. Oh yeah, for sure. And we see and, it all the time too. And I think, and they can totally get around it if they had a unified patient record because you could see everything and you'd have everything. Like it's yeah. the idea of storing a patient record in the cloud. It's so simple and it's so like yeah. 
Well, the thing is, people are scared about you know personal information, but guess what? We do all of our banking in the cloud. We do all of our governmental stuff in the cloud. Our whole profile with the FBI, the CIA, and everything else sits where? Cloud. But then we are scared to actually put something in that can save our lives. Yeah, it's interesting. To Which me is with. a bit weird, isn't it? It is. I uh, There's a special place in my heart for people that are, um, I kind of call them paranoid. Uh, you know, data paranoid of, and they don't have Facebooks, they don't have Instagrams, they don't have Twitters, and their answer is always, "I don't, I don't need anybody watching me." And it's well, I, I get it to some extent. Like, they, there's people who, I honestly think, are a bit, you know, I wouldn't say stupid, but not the smartest. Well, so when well, you post the, on well, Facebook that you're going on holiday, there's the informed that don't know, like, and they're just working out of fear, and then there's the very informed that uh, you know they do know and they, they actually have a good valid reason like I've had a lot of people say I don't have a Facebook because I know they're leverage and like I, I just had somebody close to us who mm -hmm. he just said uh, because I know Facebook is running software tests mm -hmm. where they will literally present images and stories to you because they want to see how your mood will change and they're studying your mood and your reactions and like, but it's up to you to then reply to that. It's it's the commercial thing is in between. I just scroll over it. I just don't look at it. But I think you know you're not. But being... that takes a certain level of awareness, and you know it is interesting to think that somebody's yeah. sitting out there doing behavioral tests on, based yeah. on your clicks. But you know, it, it, you know, all of these tests. Does Leonardo DiCaprio would potentially be your ideal partner? Duh. Of course they're getting your data. <laughs> yeah. You know? So so you got to be vigilant about what you do. Is you know what's what's your totem animal? I'm not gonna do those tests. <laughs> I'm not, you know the, these things. Mine's those, vanity. Yeah, always vanity. So, yo, but the thing is, people are not being cautious with that data because guess what? That's not just Facebook. That's third party collecting data from you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and your birthday, your your sex, where you're from, and where you live actually gives away a lot, right? Mm -hmm. I think if you if you go to Facebook and people kind of go like, oh, I'm going on holiday, yay! Next two weeks, Africa. <laughs> it's the same thing as saying, hello, burglars. I am not at home. Please do find yourself your way to my front door. It will be unlocked. There's a key underneath the carpet. <laughs> By all means, have fun. And that is where insurance companies are being a little bit more vigilant in terms of saying, you know, if you do that. You're basically saying to everybody with a white page on your window, I'm not home. Yeah. So so oh. just be cautious about what you share and what you don't share. The trick then is you just need all the ring stuff. Uh, to I do have the ring secure. stuff. See, there you go. But, so then you can tell anybody when you're not there because it's secure. Eh. And they're on video. And you know, the cops can be there faster than anything. Yeah, that's the US. Europe, no. No? <laughs> right, well, we, uh, this would take us down a whole path of... Uh, yeah. Uh, security theater is what we call it. My son even calls it. He's 15 and he's realized that a lot of things exist in the world that are theater. Mm. Um, they exist to make you feel safe, but even they're though not, they're, yeah. statistically yeah. you are really not safe. Yeah. <laughs> and now he's getting his driver's permit and uh, he's he's studying all this stuff and he's like, Dad, you know statistically that if you do that, and I'm like, oh, it's great when your kids become smarter than you. Like, it's, it's so much fun <laughs> to watch. But he's like, you know, statistically speaking, and I'm like, Give, please give me the stats and so yeah. it's just fun but yeah it's good times but yeah so this has been uh super eye any other thoughts or things on whether it's devops or gdpr or anything um not necessarily i think you know i'm i'm just happy to see that we're doing something in devops and i think the value of of what we're doing will come later down the line when the ai and the ml and 
and the integration and the end-to-end, -end, actually the visibility inside companies, then you will actually get the bigger benefit of everything. And I think what we're now looking at, and I think a lot of people are probably looking at it, they're looking at it siloed. Again, you know, the horse flaps. DevOps on its own is not going to solve your problem. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've got to put it in the right perspective, with the right background, with the right instance, in terms of saying, you know, I want to do this now. And for me, visibility is, is important. The way we work and the ease of use is important. Um, you know, that, that dashboarding and everything that we might have is important. But then that's where most people stop. It's that next step. You know, if you then take that HR approach of the app, you know, the one that we like, if you then plug in the DevOps piece, if you then plug in the HR piece, if you then plug in, you know, the getting the laptop kind of piece, you know, and ordering hardware or anything like that. The one thing I like and I really think is cool within ServiceNow is that they have the best buy auto sell machines and you just take your badge and you just get a new mouse. Brilliant. I don't mean. even I do not I don't even have to get a ticket. <laughs> you know, I get I get I don't know how many mice I get a year, but you know <laughs> I just so should probably so it's it's a IT vending machine. Yes, it's um, a vending machine. And we have them at some of our cooler offices where you yeah. can literally walk up and if I need a if I need a new Apple mouse, if I need yeah. a new uh well, since we all carry Macs, every dongle that Apple makes you purchase, yeah. you can literally you don't even have to deal with an IT request. Oh badge you up, done. You put your badge up, you touch it, and it creates a change. It yes. creates a request to your manager, yeah. creates an approval yeah. that goes through the whole process, gives you the thing, charges your cost center, and you you wait not at all. Finished. You literally just walk up. That's and literally next, next, next finish. It, it is perfect. It is pretty <laughs> legit. Um, but if you would then, in that same philosophy, think about DevOps, think about you know onboarding, think about all of the things that you have in your company, which are tedious processes. In that same philosophy. Once you have something, whether that's a fingerprint, a badge, an iris scan, whatever, right? Yeah, get that done. Yeah. How much more productive would we be, right? It, it really is. I mean, that's it, the, most of the stuff we've been talking about. In, and it's funny because we don't tend to market this way, but it's when when I just sit and talk to somebody like we're talking at the bar, I'm like, look, we're trying to just get all the painful crap out of the way. Like yes. that's what we're really ultimately trying yeah. to do. Is like, but make, we can't put that in the slogan, right? Get no, no, the no. crap away. Exactly. It's like, get auditors off your back. Like, it's like, but that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying yeah. to just make things easier, make yeah. them faster, make them simpler. And integrate it end to end with that same type of visibility. And that comes down to the data and understanding the data and actually visualizing the data to people who need to know the data. Yeah. And, 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 and again, those ecosystems, I, I, I honestly, and that's why I like ServiceNow, we're not about taking the whole cake. Right. We, we know that we're not going to take the whole cake and we don't need to take the whole cake. But the frosting, is everywhere yeah. yeah so and when you look at that frosting is that frosting layer which obviously makes the cake good because we all eat the cake because of the frosting not Sometimes necessarily just because the of it. there you go so so what i do is i compare service now but i compare service now to the frosting so so it makes it so much better yeah because no, it's sure. it's it's less dry less hideous less Tedious, less whatever you can find as a word that is not that positive, right? And 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 it gives you that oh my god feeling, and that's what you want. That's really ultimately what you want. And I think if you look at companies, we need to get rid of that ITSM kind of like oh you're an ITSM company. No, we're not. <laughs> we are the glue. I always say to customers, if you don't understand anything from IT, we are the glue between everything, right? Well, 
and that's that's what a lot of people don't realize is the platform. When Luddy built this platform, he built it to just optimize workflow, and it doesn't matter what the workflow is. It's everything is a workflow. And and that's the second part is that once you look at every problem, <laughs> every problem is a workflow problem. Yeah, absolutely. Like DevOps is a. I mean, literally, the Agile Manifesto was like about increasing flow throughout the system. That's mm -hmm. literally a workflow problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm excited. I think it's really cool. Um, but yeah, I also think that the approach we're taking is really neat. So yeah. um, I think it's the one you need to take because you know the more and more customers are getting into that ecosystem, the less overview they have, the less of a generic you know have a debate. Like, what do you use? And then they kind of go like, okay, give me give me a paper and I'll write it down. And you see all of these vendor names coming up, and I'm like, okay, so some of the areas are gray zone and they overlap and they do these things and i'm like okay so so how do you then know where everything sits and they go like oh yeah i have a user id there and a user id there and they try to solve this with things like an active directory or <laughs> they try to solve this with things like you know they oh let's just put it in azure then we have the LDAP. <laughs> um, it's not your common solution of doing these things right and i think if you then get to audits which is a, a level up you need to actually see inside, then people get all nervous. And if an auditor comes there, you don't have time to say, oh, come back in two weeks. No, my, my they're favorite there. Thing, my favorite thing ever, and you just reminded me, uh, and yeah, the auditor thing is, is huge, but you just reminded me, I saw on the plane over here, um, I sit next to somebody and they didn't have a privacy screen and you know, oh. it's we're right on top of each other. But he opens his laptop up and he, he I'm just going to say he works for a major cloud provider. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, a major cloud provider who really touts their innovation. And so, and this is person works and literally has like a logo, works for the operations team. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just like, at first I was like, holy shit, I'm sitting next to like, this is a big player right here. And then I notice, I, and I'm trying to watch my movie and I'm trying not to be that guy that looks at other people's stuff. But, but you do, right? But it's like, I, I see him working and I'm like, he's managing everything in Excel <laughs> and he's literally like copying and pasting jobs from their system to Excel back to their system back to Excel and I'm like they're using the Excel platform <laughs> and and I was literally just going that's that's they have operationalized a spreadsheet again and they are one of the most innovative cloud companies in the world and I'm like I, I, I can't I can't even right now but yeah. it's like but it's still, I can't. It, it always shocks me when I see somebody operationalize Excel as their mm. as their platform was, of truth. I was, you know, when I was the GM, um, I was I was dying of pivot tables. In all oh. honesty, I was like I was like, I'm, I'm, you know, I would I would literally copy paste pivot tables from vendors because guess what? By the time I actually created it, the copy paste one was easier. Yeah. Um, and and I kind of went like, is this my daily life being mm. swamped in pivot? And then maybe, okay, you still have the Excel and there's like two, three, four, five, six, 28 sheets behind it. And then there's different files behind it. And then by some weird reason, some files are being synchronized to SharePoint, the other ones are not. So then they're, they're like desynchronized and they, you spend like quarter end, at least five days on this. And then I kind of reflect on myself and I'm like, I'm a pretty expensive resource <laughs> for five days of Excel. Yeah, you know, right. I could probably find somebody who does this way better than I do. But the thing is, it is sensitive information. So right. you, it is actually P&L information, BU information, you know, all of that. And, and you can't share that with somebody from 
a junior level, but they probably know better how to build those pivot tables. And then I kind of went like, we have all of this AI, we have all of these DevOps things, we have platforms, we have everything. What am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. You were doing business as usual. Yeah, but, yeah. but the thing is, you know, imagine in a company the size of, I don't know, I wouldn't take a large environment, but, you know, maybe, maybe a smaller bank or something, yeah? And you have probably about 20, 30, 40 people doing this. And a ratio of a salary of an average of what two three thousand euros net you know maybe maybe a little bit higher i don't know yeah. and then you divide that so that full week is about 500 600 euros yeah times 300 times every quarter times years and no that's your budget yeah yeah oh yeah that's your budget it adds up quick it adds up quickly and i think when when i go to customers and most of them kind of come to me and they go like oh we don't have Turn it around, turn it around and calculate the current costs that they have by doing it wrong. It's my favorite number is, um, so I worked with a value team for so many years at VMware and then uh, the, we, there's a value team here that's amazing and they literally are working on value realization. But mm -hmm. my favorite numbers um, came from a woman I worked with for years, um, her name's Angie Reynolds, she actually works here. but. She did calculations on what to me was the most brilliant way of getting it, and it was the cost of doing nothing. Yes. And she would always do like everybody does an ROI, and no, it's but a cost she of would doing always nothing. be like, "Okay, your ROI is fine, but what about this?" And she would run the cost of doing nothing analysis. Or the risk like, of doing nothing. Yeah, and it was always huge. It was always massive. Um, or the cost of doing the same thing you're doing now, like <laughs> over and over, but it's been crappy for ten years. I, yeah, yeah, it's but it is brilliant and it is eye-opening. Eighty percent of the customers who say I do not have a budget, yeah, the cost of doing nothing miraculously turns into a budget. Yeah, oh and for sure because it's it's so easy to say that if you know if you look at the waste in a system and then think of like you know how you could reclaim that waste or or find course. value out of it. Of yeah, course, and it's not about ways. firing people. Don't get me wrong, because I think you oh. know a lot of people think it's about you know relieving people of their function. It's not. It's about doing things more interesting. I think if every CEO would have less Excel time or CTO or, or IT director or HR director or whatever, just imagine, you know, all of the middle management saving up on at least a week of Excel. Mm -hmm. Hello, it means they can do more interesting things. Yeah. Like communicating, like helping out, like looking at new programs. And I think a lot of people just say when, when we get there and, and you're talking about digital disruption and transformation and innovation and all, all those nice little buzzwords, they're like, I don't have time for this. Right. And I'm like, but I can give you time. Right. No, I can it's... give you time. If, if I take away this pain, you get time. But then you need to promise me you're going to be doing the innovation. You need to promise me you're going to be doing the transformation. Because if you're not, and you're just going to do more Excel, I'm not giving you that time. <laughs> and then they look at me and they're kind of like, you're not really in sales, are you? And I'm like, well, hang on, I am in sales, right? But I'm also in value, and not necessarily sales for the sake of sales, because I could sell you licensing tomorrow. That does not add value. If I give you time, yeah. time equals money. I don't know who said that, but it's an old one. <laughs> I yeah. As I get older, it like the most precious commodity ever is time. Yeah. And, uh, Warren Buffett, like one of the things with. So one of the coolest things I've seen in my career was when uh, 
uh, Bill Gates, who looks up to Warren Buffett as kind of like a mentor. And, mm. and, and so there was an interview where they asked him, like, what was the coolest thing that you learned about Warren Buffett? And he's like, dude, the coolest thing I ever learned about him was he would open his little planner and he carries a paper planner and he would have entire days just blocked out. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and they asked Warren Buffett, they said, like, and, and Bill Gates goes, I always thought to be a, a good executive, you had to take meetings from like no, seven in the morning no. to seven at night and you had to meet every day and you no, had to no. every hour needed to be filled with meetings. You just got to do it smarter. And Warren Buffett goes, he goes, uh, you know, I'm a very rich man. He goes, but the one thing that I can never buy is time. And he goes, so I purposefully block out time for myself because it's it's irreplaceable commodity that is just literally priceless. So yeah, I, I you registered that with me because it's like one of those things that when you can return time to a company, when you can return not the, just to a company, maybe an employee, maybe maybe you hit this this people. this C level who you know hasn't seen her kids go to bed in the last two months prior to eight o'clock. You yeah. know those things. You know you give back, and I think. To some people, it means giving back to doing something else. It means some people give back to do sports, family, health, whatever. Right. And, and, and that is literally priceless. Oh, it is. I know it's, it's, a, it's a slogan from, from you know, MasterCard that a lot is priceless. <laughs> but, but these things really are priceless because guess what? People do get sick. People do have need to visit families. You know, we're all pretty busy. And I think... It's not about filling your calendar from 7 a.m. in the morning until 7 p.m. It's about finding that two, three, four, five hours of intense, smart working, mm -hmm. and then trying to find those other times for something more interesting. For sure. No, it's really cool. And that's, the, that's what I love about uh, you know, our mission, our purpose, and everything. It's just, we see this. I mean, I, I'm, you're relatively new, but over the three and a half years, I've actually seen this. I've literally seen this happen in many different places. And we talked about Virgin Trains and their story about they're literally changing the way they do. And it's helping everybody. It's helping yes. all these commuters every day. Um, now we do so to do weird. the airplanes. That's the next in line. Because I'm like... <laughs> well, I know I know. you and I have met with a, a pretty big travel company. that, and I'm, I, Yeah, I'm like, if we could make this process better, it'd be so cool. Like... Well, if yeah. I could just show up at the airport five minutes before the flight leaves, that would be brilliant. Because yeah. now these days, you, you know when you still get like the classic ticket, it says two hours up front at the airport? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, right. They I... don't even know which gate they're going to use two hours up front. So why would you as a passenger be there two hours up front? What if you were at home and you could already send your luggage the day before? You don't have to haul it to the airport. Imagine that. That would be brilliant. You know? Yeah. yeah. But well, even even one step further down the line in the Adidas flow of thinking, what if we print our T-shirt on the other side? <laughs> you can. It exists. Wow. The cost of production is still very high. Right, right. But we will print shoes and T-shirts and everything else because it's feasible. So why would you carry something heavy, which A, you can lose, which you obviously have experience right, right. with, or B... Would you even take it on? You know, you can you can print something because guess what? When you're there, I was expecting a heat wave, 40, 45 degrees. I'm looking outside, it's not really a heat wave, right? So thank God I've got this leather jacket because I've been freezing inside. But imagine you're traveling light as you are obviously wearing clothes, but you know, you, you would print what you need on site. Wow. Why not? Well, but if Hopefully that's your... you have the sizes for fat guys because I, I know my oh, shopping You can print whatever it. you want. It's just a 3D just a printer that needs to be big. <laughs> print a tarp with a logo on it. <laughs> no, but imagine imagine this. So never needing to pack again. Yeah. 
going everywhere where you want and then finding local printable stuff in the fashion that you'll see because it always happens right we go on holiday we're obviously not we don't have a lot of time to shop so we we get there and we kind of go like oh but everybody has that bikini i want another one i've never had that problem <laughs> i don't know not the bikini but maybe the swimming shorts and you kind of go like oh but there's a hawaiian theme going on i don't have a hawaiian one i want a hawaiian you one so you could print it right so i think you know and again going into that view of what if what if we all just wore digital shorts that we could just change the color of or pattern of it exists via phone it exists there you go there's an app for that See. there's an app for that that'd be pretty legit so yeah think about what you want reverse engineer and one day you will get there that'd be pretty cool printable shirts <laughs> <laughs> oh awesome well on that note of printable shirts and uh color changing swim shorts I think we should probably uh, cut this one off, and then we can, <laughs> if we need to record another one, we always could. There's awesome. a lot of stuff we can talk about. Oh, still, for, yeah. for it sounds like for months. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank and you. It was great having you and Chris join me, and thank you for making that happen. That was great. Awesome. It was my pleasure. Yeah, awesome. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye.